Um, yeah. Uh, is anybody here like a scholar of California history? Brian would be. Oh, He's a general scholar of history. Okay. okay. Don't don't He's judge me. Boss. This is. <laughs> He'll correct you, but he okay. won't judge you. Perfect. <laughs> it's it's very informal. Um, any any dates you want to modify or anything, feel free. Uh, I'm a history enthusiast, not a professional. There was a movie out some time back. It was like a period piece that takes place in World War II, but a lot of it's back in California on a, on a vineyard, and it's, mm. it's Mexican-owned. And I'm going, well, hmm, because, you know, like my World War II. I experienced, like, it was the, a lot of the movie, and I said, why, why aren't they Italian? Mm. <laughs> it seemed like Italians had been doing most of the cultivation of grapes. Could have been Germans. Some of those yeah, too. But Mexican didn't strike a... Yeah. It was a nap and that sort of thing. Ambitious. That's good. There, yeah, we can even have a little bit of a social-cultural commentary, which kind of plays into some of this. Um, but this comes from... So I've been making wine for 12 years now. 12, yeah, 12 years. In the early 2010s, I was receiving a lot of pushback from trying to sell Italian grapes, Italian grape-produced wine in California mm -hmm. in several places, especially Sacramento, L.A., um, non-Bay Area locales. And it kind of got me to thinking uh, why it was being such an issue in certain locations and not other locations. So that initially led me to sort of wonder, like, what is the specific history of planting these things, producing them in California? Why have things shaped the way that they have with Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet being sort of unmoored from their French origins and Italian stuff still being held very tightly to that ideal that if it's not from, you know, the motherland, then it's, it somehow doesn't qualify as legitimate. Um, so there's a little, a little bit of that undertone that's less of an issue these days. The, the palette is wide open, people want new things, and it seems like the tide has really turned on that over the last... Yeah, Calatal was a bad word 20, 25 years ago. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. And now it's something you can say in polite company without... Most at the same time as Rome Rangers, you know, mm -hmm. Rome was just getting going, and uh, Calatal and Rome... Yeah. And the Rome Rangers did much better. <laughs> Hats off to them. Uh, another case of finding the right locations for the right grapes in a lot of places. So uh, that's a different history. And actually the Italian history here, it's not incredibly deep. Um, it's kind of contextual test plantings here and there, maybe a couple of bottlings. There was a little Nebbiolo in 1880. 1885, 1886, sorry, uh, from Krug Winery. There are little bright points here and there, but it's not a super deep thing. Um, you got to remember that for most of the wine history, everything was red or white. Or it was called Burgundy and had God knows what put into it. Party Burgundy. Yeah, it didn't, didn't look anything <laughs> like Burgundy. So, I, I think remember, that... I remember Thunderbird. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, which again? Is it still around? Oh, that. Uh, I, I don't know. Th I imagine Thunderbird is still around. My girlfriend did a little design work for the wine group, rebranding Mad Dog, which is still around. And then she was like, "I'm not doing this anymore." <laughs> this is absurd, and not 
that it just it's not a fun design project. But the rebranding of Go. Yeah. yeah. Was the same. Yeah. That's part of that 50s, 60s, 70s thrust of yeah. where wine consumption was going and how to bring things to market. Yeah. And you could put anything in it. It didn't necessarily matter. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there, there are places, there's the production side of the business, and then there's the boutique small, quality-obsessed sort of side. Those things don't always meet in the middle. But... Just to give a quick overview, um, if you're not familiar with our winery, we are up in Lake County, about two hours to the north here. Uh, it's next to Mendocino, just north of Napa, a warmer area, and we have, I've never actually counted, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, mm. ten Italian grapes planted there, mm. uh, ranging from the more common ones like Sangiovese and Barbera to a little more rare like Rafosco, Sagrantino, things like that. It's a pretty warm area, uh, so things that are more durable and less Pinot-ish, less delicate, do well there. Mm. Although there are exceptions to that. Uh, 1,500-foot elevation in between the Mayacamas and the Vaca Mountain Range. So I've got a little map here. just, And this is valuable for comparison also to Italy as we go on. But we're right here. This is the Napa Valley right here. And two mountain ranges that kind of converge and then split. And these are the temperature or the growing degree day zones, which are used for sort of categorizing the heat accumulation for the <coughs> growing. So Sonoma Coast, very cool. Mm. That's where you get your super spicy pinots and Syrahs, really kind of like a marginal area on the cool side. Pretty exciting stuff, high acid. Um, you're not going to get Ionico right out there by any stretch. Um, and then you can see as you move inland, you've got coastal mountain range, which is pretty wide, and the Mayacamas. And then Central Valley is this hot, mm-hmm. red area. We're kind of protected by the Vaca Mountains here, and you get a little influx <coughs> back and forth. We're a little bit warmer than Calis. We're kind of like Calistoga Cloverdales right about here, just on the other side of the mountain. So just to give you an idea. Uh, and a lot of these Italian grapes were planted in very warm areas in the late 1800s. That was one of the things when people were coming over, is getting to California, you have an abundance of sunlight, not a whole lot of rain during the growing season. You get some water. Um, kind of a growing dream in a lot of ways that wasn't necessarily, you know, people have been trying to grow grapes on the East Coast and Virginia. And oh, very, very <laughs> difficult. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're oh. Maryland too. Oh, they are. Yeah. And there are some good wines being made. I are more grapes from Where? Italy? That was a question I thought about. Yeah, uh, pretty much all of the grapes we are used to Cabernet Merlot, all the Italian grapes are Vitis vinifera, which are European, Middle Eastern origin. They're not native. Native grapes would be like Norton. Uh, Catawba. Um, what are a couple more? Native to the U.S.? Yeah. Developed outside of a lab? <laughs> and then there are a lot of hybrids also, so that you can grow them in cooler climate areas mm-hmm. or pest resistance. That's something we're facing right now, too, is we've got a lot of disease in California vineyards, and how are we going to deal with that? There's a lot of breeding going on, trying to get some red blotch resistance, things like that. Um, 
But yeah, the, the what we're used to calling fine wine is for the most part of European origin. Yeah, where else would they come from? I don't know the history going back to a thousand years worth of bees. Well, there, yeah, I mean, there are a couple native grape species. Um, Here in, in the yeah, States. mostly they're made into jams and jellies and okay. things like that. They're, they're not necessarily considered destined for aging or fine wine status. That's not the the play field is <coughs> wide open now on that though, and people are doing things with hybrids that are amazing. There's great Nebbiolo coming out of Virginia, um, Cap Franc, Long Island. You know, the wine is everywhere. And what about the mission? Yeah. Yes, brought by by the Spanish. Uh, Tinta Pais was, uh, I think, one of the parents to it. I think the parental lineage is kind of lost. So that was another European grape that was brought in with the missionaries, 1600s, 1500s. Um, and the history of California wine starts with that grape. It came through Mexico. Uh, they planted at the missions as they went north. And it was the first European cultivar that was really being produced. It is, missions and inter- makes an interesting wine. Um, there's some in Lodi that's very much in demand right now. It's pretty cool to be making a mission. And there are only a few vineyards of it left kind of floating around. So it's a limited supply thing. I don't know if anybody's actually planting it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were. I've only had South American. Yeah. You can find some in Chile. and Yeah, Pequeno. Yeah. It's kind of lighter body with really interesting aromatics. I think it's... You can see how it might be fortified into a sweeter wine. Works well with it, which is what a lot of these things were. Um, but it's it's not the Cabernet. It's not what we would traditionally think of as one of those grapes. But that's where the story does start, though. And this is just a quick map to just mention a couple of the areas that we'll hit on. Um, and it really was sort of north to south. Nobody was pushing too far north. Um, especially since you had all this open land. you got to remember there were only, what, 50,000 people in California in 1853, something like that. It was a, What's the number? Maybe 50,000. 1847. <laughs> Post, yeah, once gold was discovered in 49, then the doors sort of opened up, and a lot of entrepreneurs started flooding in, and that's where things get really interesting really fast. Um, there were a couple of things uh, in the 1830s was when Zinfandel actually made it to the United States. Yeah, it was very cool at the time to grow a few grapevines in your yard. Not necessarily production or making wine, but it was a viticultural point of interest, a botanical point of interest. And Zinfandel, which went by several names at that time, Zinfardel, Zinfindel, I think it was called Black Hungarian a lot in some of the records also. At that time, Croatia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, So that's why tracing some of these things back is a little bit difficult. You're talking about handwritten records with changing spellings and the Wild West and shipping receipts. So uh, there was knowledge of European wine but it was, this really was just sort of like starting out feeling everything. There was a lot of wine going on in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. In about 1910, 1915, that was the largest wine producing area in the world. It would have been. In the yeah. world? With the, with the weather? Wasi's 20,000 acre vineyard <coughs> is the largest <coughs> single entity. Yeah. 
uh, really fascinating. Again, most of it was red or white, or hawk, or burgundy, or something. Maybe it was Sauternes style, which sometimes Sauvignon Blanc would be Sauternes style, sometimes grapes unrelated to the Sauternes area in Bordeaux. Um, but a lot of different climates. You know, Menlo Park had a lot of Nebbiolo and Barbera going on in 1880. Pretty fascinating. So up and yeah. down California, covering all the area. And reaching back pretty far, one of the interesting things to me when I started looking at just sort of the general, reading up on the history, Italians were always associated with wine making. But Bordeaux was already famous. Burgundy was already famous. There were a lot of wine-producing areas that had global markets. But over and over again, you see states wanting to lure specifically Italians to their area to start an industry. They weren't offering the same things to Frenchmen. They were saying, you, know, you need to plant 10 French grapevines or you don't get tax write-off. So it's interesting that the Italians were always associated with that, even if they didn't have the largest market. And Bordeaux was still, back in the 1600s, a thing. It was mostly Carmenere, Cabernet Sauvignon didn't exist then, but it was still you know, a globally known entity. So Virginia was the beginning of tobacco <clears throat> culture. Jefferson. Yeah, Jefferson yes. was a big proponent. Oh, he went broke buying wines. Well, he, yeah. He, he, he had fine taste. Uh, that, that could be a double-edged sword sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, some of his tasty notes are really fascinating, too. It's really kind of crazy to say I recognize that. But didn't he bring grapes back? Oh, he, I think he, he did. He did, but nothing seemed to work out. Uh, he had a very famous Italian nurseryman working with him. They brought over Nebbiolo, all sorts of different things. Um, but I think disease, pest pressure, and just viticultural practices, they were never really able to get wine that was noteworthy or recorded out of those things. Plus, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the time, too. So hard, hard to focus sometimes. So just go buy the wine. Yeah. And, and that's, that's part of the history, though, is Europe you know, wanting to cut Europe out of the picture. It was entrepreneurial, creating a wine industry here, having it flourish. Uh, Virginia was offering tax write-offs. It, it was actually mandated for five years that everybody had to plant ten grapevines on their homestead or, or else they were fine. Not the best idea. One of the funniest things, uh, Florida, peculiar history of Florida going back and forth <coughs> to the Spanish uh, had a period of English rule for a little while, in like 1776, maybe 1780. Uh, this guy, Turnbull, was a Scotsman. Probably the most ambitious project I've ever heard of. Uh, 100 square miles, agriculture of many different types, figs. If you could think of everything that would not grow in Florida, he decided that that was what would grow in Florida. He took 10 ships and loaded them up with 1,400 people and brought them back. This monstrous agricultural product, or a parcel, planted, I couldn't find anything really solid in the records as to like how many acres of vines he planted. The entire thing fell apart, of course, 
vines wouldn't grow, they didn't like the soil, disease pressure, natives are attacking us all the time. Uh, nobody can talk to each other because half of them are from Greece, half of them are from Spain, a third are from Italy. Just an absolute disaster. Uh, and then everybody like split and he died broke. But yeah, it's ambitious. A lot of entrepreneurial spirit going on. And unfortunately, I do apologize that it's a bit of a sausage party. But I do know that a lot of these successful companies, it was the wives who were doing the books, making sure things worked out, where all these guys were off on their adventures constantly. So there's a lot of history there to be told still. Uh, Edward Antill was planting Sangiovese in New Jersey, 1760. <coughs> and, I'm sorry. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> He published an 80-page book on viticulture, which I think was the first in the United States. Um, not so much from a wine production standpoint, but he was really into agriculture. I think a gentleman farmer. Uh, South Carolina had this big idea to lure Italians as well, and there were two different vineyard companies set up in South Carolina in the late 1800s, both of which, or early 1800s, both of which fell apart very quickly. So just a lot of difficulties with location and finding people and political instability. I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. And then in California, we had the Mission Grape, of course. And until the gold rush, there wasn't necessarily that much happening. But in late 1830s, a couple of adventurous people went to LA and planted grapes, one of which was a Frenchman, uh, Vignier, last name is Vines. And he was producing Mission, I think he had a 50,000 gallon winery, which I thought, oh, 50,000, now I realized, you know, I produce 5,000 gallons. It's really not that much. But LA was only like 800 transitory people sort of coming and going, north or south. But LA would turn out to be a pretty interesting story in its own right that we will bounce back and forth to. But the gold rush really sort of opened things up. And you have to think about San Francisco growing as well, as a port, as a destination, as an economic center. You gotta have money to plant vineyards, even back in the old days. It's just not gonna work otherwise. So those two things kind of converged, and you started seeing a lot of adventurous people coming out in the 1850s wanting to create new industries. Um, finding funding somewhere, running around the globe, which I'm always amazed by. It's when you go back and forth to Europe, that's what, like a nine-month trip? Something like that? And they were doing this constantly. Some areas very quickly were recognized as being great for grapes. Some of the areas up in the El Dorado foothills, uh, Sonoma County already, you know, 1860 was the place to be. Napa had several wineries. Uh, Milia Vaca was the first one. Uh, I think that was 18, like 1843. So people were filtering through adventurers. And you still have Mexico, you have Russians up north. I mean, California is in a very weird state of flux at that point. A lot of native population. But people were still out and about planting little bits here and there and thinking about what else they could do for business. 1870 was when things really started to, to go along. 
Napa Valley wineries, uh, George Yant, Yantville, a lot of the places you've been to, things start moving at that point. And then at about, in the 1870s was when sort of California government was forming, realizing viticulture could be a legitimate source of income, important revenue for the state, um, and it's funding lots of development. So the UC, well, what's now UC Davis, I think it was just the UC system there, uh, started planting... Yeah, there were seven different test stations around California that the UC system started setting up. Um, it was kind of adventurous and speculative early on, but then by the 1880s it became much more full bore. Uh, as more grapes were coming in, there were certain things that were dominating the planting. You still had a lot of mission, but Zinfandel was taking serious hold. By 1880s, uh, yeah, Dry Creek was already planted to like 70% Zinfandel in the 1880s. So up outside of Healdsburg, where it's still famous for that, that same grape. So that, that grape is the one exception to something that became somewhat tied to a varietal label, where, where occasionally you'd see a bottle that said Zinfandel on it. But that was the exception, not the rule. And that's important to keep that in mind, because just... The viticulturists were interested in planting weird stuff, but the marketer, marketers were not. Most of the stuff was shipped in giant barrels to San Francisco where it was bottled, and there was a whole second industry selling it, sort of like the whole retail side. So they didn't necessarily care what was going into that blend. So if something was labeled varietally, especially, then it might be you know, a cool sideshow, but not definitely not like the normal everyday thing like what we do now. I mean, making 14 different varietally labeled wines would be absurd 100 years ago. Just not really economically viable. 1880s were kind of the big moment, though, where things were hitting full speed. You had a railway system, uh, which affected L.A. a lot because you still had San Francisco being a main port. You had the Transcontinental Railroad, which would become important during Prohibition. But being able to transport things became a, a big factor. And that's when you start seeing places like the Italian Swiss colony out by Cloverdale, mm. which was, you know, sort of ostensibly for Italians, um, developed by uh, Sergio Sparborough. But there are also political forces going on. You had the Chinese Exclusion Act, which opened up a lot of people being able to come in and find jobs that they would not have necessarily been able to find before. So there are always multiple forces going on. Not all of them are great or charming necessarily. Uh, now's a good time for a little Sangiovese detour, which would oh. be... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't want to blah, blah, blah too much. <laughs> Did you just pick up your glasses? Oh, I touched it. <laughs> <laughs> I got the hint. Yeah, so Sangiovese was always threatening to be an important grape, but it has sort of a dismal history here in California. It's surprisingly finicky, tends to be a little high acid, it's a little bit wiry, it's not necessarily to everybody's liking. Um, when it's blended with other things, it tends to not necessarily play particularly well. Uh, doesn't like new oak, 
which has been a Californian problem with it. It's also a, a vine that it produces a lot of crop. And if you're not in the vineyard working with it, limiting the crop growth and how it's growing, it produces really mediocre, low-quality wine. So if anybody's had the straw basket, Chianti, that's sort of the archetype for cheap, plonky Chianti, which is kind of, unfortunately, it's everybody's first Chianti is a terrible one. And it takes 15 years to come around and finally taste a good one and realize, oh my god, is this the same grape? This is completely different. Um, yeah, no, I understand. I'm a cheapskate. I, I get it. Uh, the frustrating thing for me with Sangiovese, it's probably my favorite grape. Um, a lot of work went into this first glass. This is the one on the regular tasting menu if you've had it before. It's five different types of Sangiovese. They're all picked separately, fermented separately in slightly different styles, then combined to age 24 months in neutral oak. And this is being paired side by side with about the same price point, $25, slightly different economic system, but same price point, Chianti Classico from, uh, is it Badia? I can't remember. Uh, oh, Felsina. Yeah. Pretty, pretty famous producer. Uh, if you've got 40 bucks to spend on a pretty high quality kind of modern touch of California plus old world, the, the upper <coughs> tier Felsinas are great. Is Felsina number two? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So mine is first, then Felsina is number two. So you can do a side by side comparison of California versus Tuscan. I actually forgot to get And what year are these? Uh, these are both 2016. I wasn't always able to get the vintages to match up on all of these, mm -hmm. but this one, this one is matched. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the 2016? Chianti vintage was good or not? <laughs> I don't either. Um, although it may have been a little bit rainy. Yeah. Clara twenty fifteen was super warm essentially mm -hmm. everywhere. I think the next one was maybe less warm, but yeah. I think I remember thinking that you definitely get the difference in body and texture a little bit, and I think the Italian one might have been from a slightly rainier year, which might might give them a little, a little less body than it might have otherwise. But aromatically, it certainly seems spot on. What note? And if you're familiar with Brunello, Brunello is the top of the Sangiovese ladder. The uh, 2015 Brunello release came through a couple weeks ago, so I went to that and tasted all the Brunellos. And I was talking to one of the producers, and he was telling me what a good year 2015 was because it only rained four or five times before harvest. So here in California, we're quite spoiled. We did get rain twice last year. 
We have fires. We have other problems yeah. that they don't have. Were the fires near your vineyard? Uh, any of that? There's been in the last like, ten, was, yeah. Yeah, that was, smoke, that was pretty uh, all around the vineyard. 2015, the late fire? Is uh, that was closer to Middletown, yeah, the first yeah. one. The, the 2018 one, the Mendocino Complex mm -hmm. fire, we were evacuated for that. And I watched that burn for weeks. So that, that was the bad one for where we were located. Fortunately, I don't, I think a fireman might, I think his truck might have rolled, uh, but no civilians were hurt mm -hmm. in that one. It was pretty amazing for 300,000 acres. So what cheese would you eat with the San Giovese? Meredith is the cheese <laughs> expert. So. Um, Actually, between all these, I don't know. Casa Tica, right, the buffalo? Mm -hmm. Probably that one. Um, That's what I think. The Manchego might work, more. too. Yeah. Where's the Manchego? That was the middle one. I ate it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> was it good? I didn't get any. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find you some. Are, are you into pairing food with wine? I'm into it, are yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a total cheese expert, but um, the creaminess from the Casa Tico, which is the kind of uh, like square one at the edge with the white yeah. edging. Yeah. Um, like pretty soft tannins on San Giovese, they would pair pretty well and kind of cleanse the palate. It's a little bit more dense. What is this? Casa Tica de Buffalo, right? Yeah. Uh, so, it's from Piedmont, Italy? Or no, South. Julia Tile did me a real favor about 25, 30 years ago, wherever it was. She came out and she said, Oh, you can drink any wine with any food. <laughs> if you like it, drink it. Or without food. Or there's the after dinner yeah. wine, the before dinner wine. So, Chianti Clas Classico is primarily, or yes, solely uh, Sangiovese. It's so not if, always, is it? If it says Chianti, it's going to be at least 80% Sangiovese. Okay. There is some blending allowed historically. Mm -hmm. But wineries have really been getting away from that. And I think there have been a couple recent changes to that rule. It used to be you could make Chianti with 10% white grapes, Trebbiano, Malvasia, wow. things like that. Wow. Yeah, and part of the... Chianti developed kind of a bad reputation yeah. for a while. Yeah. Part, Sangiovese produces way too much. It's not always planted in the right areas. You can put white grapes into it, which sometimes can do really interesting things, but not Trebbiano. That's like the wrong thing to put into it. Um, some of the other red grapes you can, in some areas, blend with Sangiovese historically, like Chiliagiolo is re actually really good on its own. People are starting to do that. Uh, and then Colorino. Those can sort of play well, but they're, they're being used to give Sangiovese more body because it's kind of thin and weedy and a little bit hollow-ish. One of the uh, marketing points they put up in Multipuciano with the Vino Nobile was that we can do some blending here. We're in Brunello, they're out there 100% yeah. Sangiovese, so they're, you know, if it's a bad year of Sangiovese, we, they can't do much about it, whereas we can, because we can mm -hmm. do something that's gonna... Yeah. I'm, sure they, I'm sure they love that in Brunello. And yeah. there was Brunello Gate a couple of years ago when there was some blend <coughs> uncovered. Mm. That happens in Barolo also, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's a specific uh, 
coloring molecule that Nebbiolo doesn't have, and if you test for it and something's in there, then that means that it's been adulterated. Are there people who work for the they work to uh, like test olive oils to make sure that they're not the, counterfeit mm-hmm. and test lines? Or, In theory, like, professional tasters, right? Yeah. A lot, a lot of these, you know, DOG, DOCG things, and sometimes there will be independent. Like uh, in Mendocino County, there's uh, <coughs> there's a specific Zinfandel-based blend called Coro that the Mendocino producers voluntarily put together themselves according to a guideline of, of blending percentages, and then they all get around and taste it to make sure that it meets the cut. There's a lot of that in Spain too, and some of the other where it needs to be like yeah. of the type or of quality. And that makes some sense. So, so that, that label on the top of the bottle with the DOCG. DOCG, yes. Is that the government or is that just a trade group? Uh, so that's the government. The trade group would be the Black Rooster, which is Chianti Classico's symbolic mascot now. So that's kind of like the marketing part. But. Yeah, there are several different tiers. DOC is below DOCG. Usually, uh, there are going to be limits on how much you can produce, how long it's aged in oak, uh, how quickly you can release the bottle. And the higher you go up the ladder, the more stringent the restraints are. Did they start that, I mean, relatively new compared to, say, the French classification? Relatively, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1970s, yeah. 1980. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, it seemed when I was in but Italy, sometimes they just had started doing it, it that. It can also, in the early 80s. and our California AVA model is sort of like that. Yeah. Uh, and it can be, you know, sometimes it's political. If, if, if you come from a wealthy wine family, everybody gets an AVA. Yeah. It can be a bit much sometimes. So whether or not there should be more AVAs <coughs> is a hot topic right now, um, just because you don't want to fragment and confuse the market too much. Mm-hmm. But I think it is valuable. And in Italy, you know, part of the equation is, is it a historically unique growing area? Even in the U.S., when you write a, an AVA application to the TTB, for the most part, unless it's something totally unique that's very clear and concise on its own, but usually there's a section where you have to put the history of why there's a precedent for this. Like, why, what makes this area historically interesting as well as whatever viticultural stuff. So, in the wine world, do try to be conscious of that thing. Um, but yeah, Sangiovese, California, the, the Italian Swiss colony in near Cloverdale, was probably the most famous, largest Sangiovese producer in California. Probably, historically, still the largest. Um, their Tipo Chianti had a good slug of Sangiovese in it. It was kind of homage to homage to the motherland. Um, there was lots of other stuff going into that, though. But the Italians that were running it, they planted Barbera, they planted Nebbiolo, they planted other things as well. That's still... Is it a giant Swiss? Are they still They're gone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, they were bought, it's now Infinity Cellars. Mm-hmm. And they used to do tours because I think they still have these monstrous 100,000 gallon Redwood tanks. Mm-hmm. And I, was re- I really wanted to go there, but they're, they're not. Which is amazing to me because it's like historically, can't you make them give me a tour? <laughs> it's, it's, 
heritage type yeah. stuff. There's a sign on the highway, Italian Swiss column. Yeah. It's got to be a So, so no, have they replanted many of those vineyards then, or is it still... Some of them have years? been. Um, one point of note, have you heard of Segazio? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty famous for those infidels. Yeah. So Eduardo Segazio worked, so Grandpa Segazio, or Father Segazio? Grandfather. Papa. Yeah, Pete, <laughs> Pete and the other ones, uh, fathers. They hate each other now, so I, when I talked to Pete, he didn't even mention his brother's name. Um, was the winemaker for the Italian Swiss colony, I think, in the... Wow. Like, maybe 1895 to 1910. So a lot of that property, which is now Segazio property, was nestled next to or overlapping with mm. the Italian Swiss colony. The Sangiovese bottling... Well, there are two. There's the regular Sangiovese, which was recently planted, uh, but there's a bottling called Venom that they make, which I think has a little bit of Cabernet mixed in it. But that's five different clones that Ted says were the original Italian Swiss colony clones that were moved, replanted, because you can take budwood mm -hmm. and then stick it onto a growing rootstock, and then you have the same vine. That's how grapevines are propagated, is with grafting. So able to, you can go to your neighbor's place, take a cutting, and grow the same DNA material on your property. At 3 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. I've done it. Yeah. That's the best time. Um, What's that snipping out here? And he claims that that is, in fact, lost clones from the Italian Swiss colony. So... And I don't know that anybody's ever DNA'd them because he also claims that they don't exist anymore in Italy, which I don't know why he would know that. Sangiovese is a huge family with over a hundred different biotypes that have been recognized. We have, I think, 17 or 18 that are available here in the US. There are a lot more. So it's a big, it's like Pino, it mutates a lot. Um, and that's part of the issue with getting it in the right place. That's why I planted five different types. I just wasn't sure. So, not eggs all in one basket. Have you found again. one that does better than the others? Uh, I'm, it's too young to know yet, but the first Brunello producer was called Biondi Santi. They were like the first people oh, yeah. to really say, like, this is, you know, this Sangiovese is not like <laughs> other Sangioveses. They all sound the same. <laughs> I know, yeah. I could probably no, say, no, say anything as no, long as it ended in a vowel. the Chianti or something. No, 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 we had some Bialy. No, it's not Bialy. Oh. Okay. No, no, the Italian that we got from last bottle. Okay, oh. ah. go ahead. Oh. <laughs> anyway, that one is, there's something about that particular type that's just really compelling. Mm. It's got the, just the, the tan and the depth, of, but the vines are only five, six years old. They don't have fully developed canopies yet. It's very slow to develop. Okay, so moving on. Wow. We'll suffer through a quick little bit of history, though, again. Uh, 1880 was really the formative year, and then the wine industry moved into a crash in the 1890s. So 1880 was when there was a lot of money coming in, a lot of plantings going on. Uh, three of the people heavily involved in that, I mentioned uh, John Doyle, who was down in Menlo Park. He had two wineries down there, and he was sort of a globe-trotting lawyer with a very fine taste, and uh, but also an agriculturalist. Um, he was one of the people who 
made huge contribu contributions to the California wine industry and then was promptly forgotten. Hmm. Hmm. Um, he was one of the original people really highlighting the need for sanitation, hmm. the need for, you know, tanks being fully topped, temperature control, things like that. He would go over to Europe, saw what they were doing, learn from people, and came back to the U.S. He and Eugene Hilgard, the guy at the top, Eugene Hilgard was part of the UC Davis, or UC system at the time. Uh, I believe he was a pretty amazing guy. He was actually a soil scientist and geologist. He was over on the East Coast and then sort of came out to California and just immersed himself in the wine industry and was hired by the college. Um, Hilgard was super analytical. <coughs> so one of the neatest historical documents you can go through is the Hilgard reports, mm. which are data from seven different growing stations all around California, and then test batches of six gallons of wine made from every single lot with extensive tasting notes, and not only just extensive tasting notes, but uh, different degrees of alcohol, what this tasted like, you know, 13%, 14%, 15%, slightly too ripe, slightly underripe, green tannin with spice note, quite pleasant, destined for long aging. Like, it's, it's, it's an, an amazing repository of eerily accurate stuff when you go through it. His Rafosco notes are super, they're what our Rafosco is based on. That's what we're trying to kind of recapture that sort of sense of it. And then in the middle you had a guy named Charles Wetmore, uh, who ended up with a couple of, and again, these people were so amazing to me. He was a, like a trial lawyer and then an actor and then he was in Panama and then he was selling real estate in <laughs> North Carolina. And he kept the same name? <laughs> <laughs> At least in California he was known as, as Charles Wetmore. And he, he was highly educated but kind of felt himself to be the rough and tumble <coughs> brawler kind of guy, a huge personality. And he became sort of the force for the growers, like the get it done, get it planted, get it sold kind of aspect, where you had, you know, a college-trained, sort of finicky, detail-oriented person, and then Doyle being a little more of the gourmand. And these three forces really sort of shaped California viticulture for 10 years. They were pushing and pulling, they were fighting all the time, uh, there was even a separate organization that separated itself from Wetmore so that they could get back together and fight all through the 19 or 1890s, uh, which actually Italian states <coughs> colony was behind. Um, so fine European production versus cowboy boots, dust, four by four, that kind of thing. And Wetmore kind of won in a lot of ways. It's not that what he was saying was necessarily accurate, but at the end, the California wine industry shifted into production and kind of forgot some of the quality things. And you probably can't read this, but this is, when I was doing a little bit of research, this is a line of tasting notes from 1896 from the Royal, Royal School of Viticulture and Enology. Uh, Swiss colony wines produced that were sent for review. So where, the ocean. where was it being tasted? Uh, over or in England, I believe. In right. England? Yeah. Right, Still important shipping center, things like that. Uh, Chablis, 
there wasn't really any Chardonnay in California at that time. So I don't know what was in the Chablis. Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris does have a history, oddly enough. Pinot Gris has always been something that's sort of been present. Um, Northern Italy, you know, German-Hungarian triangle. Uh, but I don't know much about the history in California of Pinot Gris. But it's a chameleon. It can take hot weather for production. It can do cool weather and do fine, delicate type stuff. So, I'm sorry. Does Chardonnay have a long history? I don't know. There's a little bit here and there, yeah. but Chardonnay was probably less than 200 acres until 1970. Like, didn't almost didn't even register. Okay. Hans Cornell made champagne out of German grapes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a lot of... Uh, yeah, a lot of white grapes we don't think about anymore, or even hear about. Post-Prohibition, it was pretty much all Palomino. And uh, uh, what's the uh, the really bland one? <laughs> I'll remember because I grew up on a vineyard of it. I just blanked on the name. <clears throat> you know, 20 tons to the acre. Just very, very plonkish. But it's interesting to see then hock, intense perfume. What goes into a hock is always a bit questionable, but you always imagine perhaps some Gewürztraminer, a little more Alsatian German-ish. Think of the bottle shape. Chateau Ikem might be Sauvignon Blanc. There was Sauvignon Blanc filtering in and out, but nobody was thinking very highly of it. Sauvignon Blanc is, again, very tricky with viticulture to get it right and location. Is Chateau Ikem, is that? So sweet that's wine. A great, yeah, I mean, that's a yeah. Sauternes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And they, the varietal thing doesn't happen. <coughs> but then at the bottom here, 1891 Barolo, wow. and then Nebbiolo in parentheses. Not the best review, uh, let's say. Characteristic perfume, tannin too low, inferior. Yeah. So, you know, it's Nebbiolo, that's about the best we can do with it. So that's not too surprising. Barbera. And Barbera was always expected to produce quality in California. And tasty. And Hilgard had all these different test blocks. Doyle was planting Barbera in Menlo Park. There was some Italian-Swiss colony was growing it. It just was never quite turning out right in California. Mm. I think that's because just the whole idea of sending people into the vineyard to cut off grapes to fall on the ground wasn't something that was going to happen. Mm. Barbera is extremely productive, just like Sangiovese. Mm. And that's the thing with a lot of these Italian grapes. They're finicky, man. They're, they're, Cabernet is not going to overcrop. Like, Zinfandel might, but... These Italian grapes need a lot of constraint to really work well. So in these test plots, things just weren't working out that well for Barbera until about the 1860s when it started being planted in warmer areas and maybe different soils. But it was always threatening to be a thing. It was always there sort of peripherally on the conscience. And then Zinfandel down at the bottom. Brilliant ruby, special, intense perfume, extra fine. And then also there's more bed here also, Mataro. Oh, good amount of, that would be an interesting history in its own right, because more bed. It says, but not extra fun. Yeah, oh, but not, oh, man. I, I oh, like, but not extra good fun. enough for bottling, but yeah. not extra Oh, but not fun. extra fun, yeah. <laughs> and the, the champagne is too tannic, so I'm kind of fascinated yeah. by that one. But, <clears throat> what is yeah, Mataro? It's just a variety? Uh, it's another name for more bed. It's more bed. Yeah, oh, the Rhone blending grape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You gotta remember pre 
phylloxera pre-World War, uh, the Rhone region was mostly morbid. Hmm. Not Grenache was replanted hmm. after phylloxera because hmm. it produced twice as much. So, lots of basic <laughs> considerations sometimes. But 1880s, these three really shaped the trajectory. But then the market sort of started to crash a little can, bit. Can I ask, yeah. was there any push from, say, different regions in Italy or... Italy had its to, own problems at this point. The, oh, okay. So Italy, yeah, Italy, that's why you start seeing a lot of Italian immigrants. The unification of Italy was a very painful process that didn't benefit everybody, especially in the South. I mean, that's where my family came from in 1903. The, the South in particular was hit hard. And it's interesting to note, and this gets into some more contentious characteristics, but a lot of these successful people that came over and did things were Northern Italianers. Mm. My Sicilian family hates that. <laughs> <laughs> those rich, arrogant Northern Italians, Piemontese, I hate them. <laughs> Always been like that a little bit. My Sicilian family was a little bit on the lazy side, so. <laughs> Sour grapes. Um, yeah. So industry is booming, though, and then problems start to happen. You have an economic crash that occurs. Uh, you have phylloxera, which changes the face of wine. You're talking economic crash in Italy. No, here. 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 Yeah. 1893. What year? 1893, yeah. Yeah. It's the end of Corbett Clinton's presence. What was the... The cost? How did it get there? We didn't have a central bank. And so it's always, uh, it's, always, it's always a banking run. That mm. uh, That's the other theme of this, is that everything is everything that changes is the same. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, supposedly it's all up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but wine still runs in these 10-year cycles. We're, we're going through it right now. It's, it's not oh. something new. The conflict between growers and winemakers is not something new. Um, a lot of these things repeat. They're just part of the industry. Uh, but phylloxera is a big thing. So it's a little louse that feeds on the roots of grapevines and eventually kills the grapevines. And it moves slowly. So it's, you know, from your view on the ground, you might have a row of vines that just <coughs> start to die. And then maybe <coughs> next year, 10 other vines next to it starts to die. Like it doesn't look like something dramatic is mm. happening. But there's not much defense from it. Um, they had to go through a lot of research to realize that, in fact, Native American rootstocks are resistant to phylloxera. And we accidentally sent phylloxera to Europe. It went through Spain. It went through Italy. It cannot uh, The little insect, it does not like sandy soil. So there are particular areas that are either so rocky or so sandy that it can't live, and you can find grapevines that are grown on their own roots. A lot of Washington is actually like that. Whether or not that makes a difference is a huge source of discussion. Uh, the basic idea is that not really. There's definitely a little more romance to having own rooted vines somewhere, and it looks good on a bottle. But whether or not it affects the nature of the wine, that's something else. But it took a while to figure, figure that out and figure out which ones were actually resistant. And then there's this whole thing that happened later in the 1970s, 
especially in Napa Valley with the AXR rootstock, which they thought was resistant, and all of a sudden phylloxera reemerged in Napa Valley, and those vines had to all be pulled out and replanted. So they've not found any way to ward it off. <laughs> they tried fumigating soils and all sorts of amendments and you know bug killer, just everything you can think of that might actually kill it off. But it seems to be quite hardy. Yeah, there, there are only a couple ways to get around it. The other thing that happens, and this is still a big threat in Southern California, is something called Pierce's disease. And Pierce's disease only, it only, the insects that carry it only survive in areas that don't freeze over the winter. It likes moderate climates. So Paso, Santa Barbara, Anaheim, those areas, specifically Anaheim, in about 1890 was completely wiped out by Pierce's disease. What's it said again? Uh, it was discovered by <coughs> Dr. Pier- Pierce's. Pierce's. Like piercing. Right yeah, the doctor's name was Pierce, but it, it's a, like a bacterium on the proboscis of some insects. Mm. And then it gets into the vine, and really, like, that happens <coughs> pretty fast. It's decimating. So every year, actually, we, any grape grower in California, we pay a thing every year, December 31st for Pierce's disease research and keeping that going. So that's another source of grumbling out there. So I don't mind paying it because we're not going to get in Lake County because we freeze over the winter. We're too far out of it. So what happens but, in the regions where it doesn't freeze now in today's climate? What's going oh, on? Oh, like Paso? Uh, like places where it might reemerge? Yeah. Yeah, there's super, there's lots of collection traps and uh, I think wetland management is part of it also, like the insects they harbor in certain areas, so trying to control mm. those things. Yeah, it's a big thing and a big concern. Uh, you also had prohibition. Prohibition did not happen all at once. It was slowly creeping by the 1900s already. I don't think anybody really, especially out here in California, weren't <coughs> really thinking that that was gonna <coughs> happen until it was too late. Um, but 15-year-olds could drink. So, yeah, maybe some something could have been altered in a different way to clean up some of the issues that led to prohibition. Now, I mentioned earlier uh, the More two... More marijuana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, I think it's here. <laughs> I think I smell it, actually. Yeah. Um, CWA, California Winery Association versus California Winemakers, California Winemakers, and something of California. These were the two warring factions. This was Wetmore, and then this was led by Italian Swiss. Um, And they basically had two different things. Wetmore wanted to get as much wine to the bottlers in San Francisco to have them sell it as possible. He said, anybody could do it. The sanitation stuff is garbage. Don't need to know it. Um, production will solve all of our problems. The other guy said, no, no, quality is important. Plant more interesting grapes, do your test bottlings, follow what the smart guys say. And they ended up losing. So, and by about 1905, I think the CWMC disbanded. <laughs> and, you know, you're coming... You've got some financial issues going on. There are a lot of forces at work here. Um, you have 
this gets into the period where a lot of Italian immigrants are coming in also. A lot of unskilled labor um, and a lot of rapid expansion. So if you run a restaurant, you can't hire everybody and make Michelin-starred food. So, and there's more and more pressure to produce more and more grapes. And a lot of the Central Valley is starting to be planted now. And in fact, Italian Swiss, they had all this really nice property up in Cloverdale. They actually, by, I think, 1910, owned 10 times more land in Central Valley fruit <coughs> than they did in their, the original area as they sold off bits and pieces. So things were shifting to lower quality, higher yield. So, so don't do that. It's dangerous. You still have these little pockets like Dry Creek, uh, some of the original people up in Amador County, which is a really cool place mm -hmm. if you've never visited it. It's actually kind of similar to Lake County. And yeah, industry fragmentation, oncoming problems. The state is growing at a rapid, rapid rate also. So, issues arising. So good segue to Barbera. Uh, Barbera kind of unique because of its high acidity and low tannin. I can't think of another red grape that has the same profile necessarily. Um, and I think I was actually surprised by how similar these two are. The Rinaldi uh, number four is actually 2015, but it had less time in barrel than yeah. ours, so that might be a good equalizing force. And I think the oldest Barbera in California that we know of is Dick Cooper up in Amador County. Unless there are some vines interplanted with other stuff somewhere like Sonoma Valley. But there were always test blocks of Barbera going on, but it was never quite achieving what they thought it could achieve. And the weird thing is that Barbera was not great in Italy, in mm. fact. And Barbera was often a semi-sparkling wine up until about 1960. It had so much acidity that it couldn't finish the malolactic fermentation, the second fermentation it goes through. It often was still full of CO2 and sometimes had some sugar in it because it just couldn't finish fermenting. <clears throat> Good Barbera like this kind of appeared, um, who's the guy that did the first uh, vineyard bottling of Barbera in 72? I should know this, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah. But now it's doing great in California. I think just sort of getting the viticulture aligned with what the grape needs finally delivered on those early promises. So, so what would you serve this with as a meal? Barbera is versatile. I really like that. You can either work it with the acidity, so you can have it go with something that has a little bit of, uh, you know, t people often say tomato <laughs> dishes. Um, but you can also, like I might be doing a Roman dish in a couple of weeks here, braised with figs and uh, some apricots. Barbaric can kind of absorb some of that sweetness because of the generosity of the fruit and then the acidity in the wine where something like a Cabernet would probably not not work out as well. And Barbera is super drinkable on its own, too. 
as long as you're okay with that little bit of acid pop to it, it's it really is a super friendly wine. And, and in warm areas, you can get Barbera so ripe that the acidity falls out. I think it loses a lot of its charm then, but it definitely is possible. I, I remember our 2009 Barbera when that happened. It's kind of a bummer. And Barbera has kind of a weird history. So Gallo in late 70s, early 80s, planted or had growers plant about 15,000 acres of Barbera in the Central Valley for blending wine to keep acidity up, add color, add a little bit of body. But it was such a pain to deal with. And it's something that's not mechanized very easily, like mechanically harvesting these days. Barbera is super resistant to it. It's a very droopy vine. Like some grow pretty upright and straight, Grenache, Negro Maro, Moved. Zinfandel's kind of in between. Barbera just sprawls and splays out everywhere. It'll grow along the ground if it can. Mm. So you need these trellising systems to kind of like hold it all together. And that's one of the challenges in California because it grows so much more here than it does in Italy on those leaner, older soils on that limestone in a lot of the areas. Mm. So you see this this bump in production. Yeah, and then they start to rip all that out. Mm. So, yeah, Barbera's, I'm glad that it's finally taking off. And you can, we get a lot of people in here that say they love Barbera, which 10 years ago might have been one or two, but it seems to actually be a thing now. And that's pretty exciting. Um, are you, can we, uh, reload glass one and two for everybody? Yes, sure. Cool. So 1900 to Prohibition gets to be kind of a dark area. The one bright spot to it though, well, I guess it depends on how you, how you, how you define bright spot. Planting in L.A. really took off after the Pierce's disease debacle. There was a guy uh, named Guasti who was actually a chef, very interesting person, came over, didn't speak English, but very enterprising. Ended up in Southern California, uh, got kind of involved in agriculture and then agricultural-based industries. He was a quick learner, uh, and eventually went out to Rancho Cucamonga and founded the Italian Grapevine Company, which ended up having the largest vineyard in the world at the time. And I don't really understand how vines can survive out there, but what I do know is that you have <laughs> the San Bernardino Mountains, and then you have sandstorms and this sort of sloping plain that looks like nothing on earth could grow on it. But underneath it, there's soil with a water table running along, I guess, you know, the mountains. You got thing, you know, it must all be going like this. Once the vine roots get down about 15 feet out there, they find water and they go crazy. Things planted in the sand. Yeah, they can get really deep if given free reign to do so. That's one of the discussions we have about drip irrigation and are you stunting your root growth and you know feeding your grapevines candy instead of making them grow strong. So it's a topic. But out there, he kind of found this miraculous place. 
They had problems like blinding sandstorms in the middle of summer. Uh, all the animals out there were very hungry, so they had to install miles and miles of fencing. And this is, you know, this is early 1900s. It's not the easiest thing to work on these massive projects. Eventually, they built an entire railroad on the property, so they would actually pick the grapes, dump them into gondolas, take them by rail up to the winery, and had an amazing production facility right there. They weren't bottling there. They would then send it to San Francisco just like everyone else, which kind of gave control to somebody else in the chain. But while things were getting a little bit dicey in Northern California, for this period, Southern California was really, really growing. And I think I read that he had planted over 450 grape varietals as well. So you have a huge vineyard, and you always have a little test block. You want to know what grows well. It's kind of fun to play with rootstocks and different clones. He was producing varietally labeled Barbera from time to time, Sangiovese. I don't think he did Nebbiolo. Uh, and then one grape that actually we're not talking about in this, but is Italian, is Grignolino, which is a very pale, it's like if you took Pinot and Muscat and put the two together. It's super refreshing. You chill it, you drink it in the summer, and it's great. It smells like roses and strawberry jam. Super tasty. Heights makes one out of some original plantings built today. What's it called? Uh, Grignolino, which is G-R-I-G-N-O-L-O. Yeah, it's a lot of... It's just a very pale colored red grape, so it'll still have skin contact and a little bit of tannin, but it's, I, it may actually be genetically linked to muscax. It has a lot of those terpenic, floral, like fruit bowl kind of things. Yeah, it's really pretty and fun. It's chill. Yeah, well, especially in LA. It's hot there. You want to chill that stuff. You want to drink desert petite Syrah. <laughs> Well, sometimes you do, but every, every place and every time. Um, but, again, Guasti ended up losing control of the vineyard, mm -hmm. and then quality dropped, and it went into production mode, and then it became red or white, and everything just sort of started going to that middle point. Um, and then Prohibition was sort of on the horizon, coming very quickly. So, 